Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Health podcast. I'm Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News, host of this podcast, and editor of Agents of Change, which brings you the voices of next-generation environmental health leaders. Agents of Change and this podcast are projects of EHN.org and the George Washington University Milken Institute School of Public Health. I hope everyone's doing all right. It would be remiss to not at least mention the times we're living in right now. There's too much hate, too much division, too much violence, too much pain. This first month of 2021 is feeling a little bit too much like 2020. One of the reasons we started Agents of Change is to elevate marginalized voices and work toward justice, peace, and health. So you are in the right place. And if you need some positivity, I have a great show for you today. But before we get to it, I just wanted to first thank everyone who's been listening and telling others about the podcast. Our numbers continue to go up, which is quite remarkable since we are building the cars we're driving it, as Ami Zoda, our founder, likes to say. We hope you keep sharing the podcast with friends, family, and colleagues, and please rate us on iTunes. I'd also really like to hear what you think about it. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with any suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just a chat. So on to today's show. I'm joined by Brianna Vanoy, who works in clinical research at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. She's also part of our first group of fellows. Brianna wrote a powerful essay on including black and brown people in research, both as researchers and participants. It's wild. We published that essay last May, and I reread it before I spoke with her, and it was just so prescient given where we're at today with continued disparate COVID rates and trying to engender public trust as we roll out these vaccines really like talking to Brianna. She's always smiling and she gives me hope for the future of public health. Enjoy. Now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Brianna Vanoy. Brianna, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Doing well, doing well. So Brianna was part of our first group of fellows, and now she's at the Nationwide Children's Hospital in, outside of Columbus. Is that right? In, in Columbus. In Columbus. In the Great. heart of Columbus, yep. Great. So a good place to start is maybe what is it or what was it about the field of public health that first drew you to it? Well, I always say I kind of stumbled into public health. Um, as a biology pre-med student in college, I kind of had my blinders on, of course, just going through, trying to check as many boxes off as I could. Um, and I had the chance to go on a medical volunteer trip abroad. And that was my first time really uh, starting to understand some of the maybe upstream and external factors that influence a person's health. So we were working in a rural community at the time. So there were um, issues with sanitation and water quality, um, lack of access to consistent care. Um, and I realized that, you know, there were a lot of these external factors that I needed to be more aware of if I wanted to be, you know, a physician one day. And so I came back to college and took a intro to public health course. And that kind of just opened my eyes and my mind to uh, so many different things. And it also helped me reflect on a lot of the issues that I had seen growing up, but didn't necessarily have the vocabulary or like fancy words for like gentrification or food deserts or, you know, um, different communities being marginalized by, you know, inequities. I had seen these things growing up in Dayton, Ohio. Um, I had seen how black and brown communities had, you know, less access to healthful foods in certain communities. 
um, or there were differences in health outcomes, but I didn't have the terminology for it at the time. And so public health really gave me a framework to um, not only look forward, but also reflect on my own life and upbringing and how a lot of those issues were prominent um, in the communities from which I came and the communities that I, I wanted to serve. And so I, I kind of just took my interest in it and ran with it in terms of uh, schooling and getting involved with different projects, research. Um, and so when I was in college, I had the chance to be involved with environmental justice research. And so um, we were working with the community here in Columbus um, who was essentially advocating for um, the installation of air monitors in their neighborhood because they were concerned about um, pollution from a nearby power plant. And so they teamed up with um, one of the researchers at my institution who was a toxicologist. And um, we did soil sampling in the community and we did a lot of like advocacy um, related work with them, talking with Columbus Public Health and the Ohio EPA and really trying to help advance their efforts um, for environmental justice in their neighborhood. And so um, through that work, I was working with a, um, a researcher. He was a black black researcher. So it was my first time seeing a black man in this role and, you know, academic research and environmental health and me being the only black person, black student in my department. Um, he really took me under his wing and showed me my capability in the field and kind of really set me on my path and academic research for sure. And so um, it was kind of an easy uh, transition to grad school. And I guess the rest is history. <laughs> When you talk about having the um, the black researcher you mentioned, what did that what did that mean to you? Finally, seeing somebody who looked like you in a, in that kind of position that maybe you hadn't seen before. You know, it was just I would say very empowering to see someone that looks like you in these spaces. Um, you know, unfortunately, the reality is that you kind of get used to being the only one or very few people um, in. Um, science related spaces and particularly in environmental health spaces, which is so peculiar when you think about a lot of grassroots efforts and a lot of environmental movements have been led by, you know, uh, communities of color. Yet when you get into higher academic spaces, um, you see less and less of that. And so um, for me, you know, I was just really happy that I had sort of this example or model of a person that I could look up to. And that also gave me an opportunity because um, a lot of times it's not that students don't have the potential or the drive, but they need someone to open the door for them. And um, he was someone that gave me a chance. I hadn't had um, any, you know, formal research experience before. And by him allowing me to learn from him and the postdocs and the PhD students in his lab that then gave me the experience that I needed moving forward in grad school. When I applied for different opportunities, I could say that I had research experience. So it was really him um, opening up doors for me, showing me that this is something that I could achieve um, and, you know, not cutting corners. On, you know, he still pushed me <laughs> as hard as anyone else. And um, if not more sometimes, and, um, but it, it was always good. Dr. Hood, I'll shout him out um, to have his support. I still do to this day. Um, I shared my PHN article with him and he was super proud and excited about it. So, um, you know, I hope that I can do the same thing for um, black women, black students, um, students of color in the future, just showing them that this is something that's achievable for you. And if you have the interest, no matter what it is, like you can do it. Um, and, you know, there are people that have gone before you um, that can help you. 
That's awesome. And I want to talk a little bit about your work now, but prior to moving there, you were at um, George Washington University when you Mm -hmm. uh, did the fellowship for with EHN. And um, your essay was on representation and research. And the opening line of your essay really hit me. It was uh, you started off from black woman to black woman. Is it a good idea for me to participate in these studies? And I'm I'm thinking about it now, too, in the context of COVID and all that. And this came out um, obviously much prior to there being a vaccine. But some of these same issues are coming up right now. And it, it struck me as someone who's covered science for nearly a decade as a reporter that it's so often thought that science is kind of a cold, logical field and it doesn't have too much bias. However, when we're talking about who's included in these health studies and also who's conducting them, as you just mentioned, there's kind of this built-in bias. Uh, and one way is that it's overwhelmingly white. And I wonder if you can talk about the study you worked on on uterine fibroids and how your team was was intentional about its engagement with the Black female participants. Yeah, so um, I worked with Dr. Ami Zoda, who is uh, co-founder of uh, Ages of Change, and um, she had um, began this research program at GW um, trying to understand more about uterine fibroids um, from uh, an environmental and kind of social epigenetic context. And so I um, was fortunate to work for her um, as research coordinator for the study. And so my job really was about recruiting patients and then being with them along the entire um, study enrollment period from start to finish. And so I recruited patients at GW and, um, you know, I did interviews with patients, asking them about their experiences with fibroids, which are, for those who are unfamiliar, they're um, non-cancerous tumors that grow in and around the uterus of reproductive age women and Black women um, experience fibroids at higher rates than non-white, uh, non-black women, and they have, um, you know, higher morbidity oftentimes, and um, have to undergo hysterectomy at higher rates than other women. And so it's a it's an issue for all reproductive age women, but black women definitely carry a larger burden um, of the condition. And so, you know, as a black woman, woman myself, as someone who has women in my family who have fibroids, it was. Uh, a topic that was near and dear to me. And so I was really excited to um, be a part of a study like this, especially since it kind of bridged the world of clinical medicine, which I was interested in, and then also environmental health sciences. Um, But, you know, we had the chance to work with so many women. During my time there, I recruited over 100 patients. And so it was interviewing them, asking them about um, the hair care products that they use, household cleaning products, so we could get an idea about maybe some um, chemical, environmental exposures, um, ask them about stress in their daily lives, experiences of discrimination, um, ask them about their experiences in healthcare settings, um, interacting with their clinicians, um, ask them about, you know, just what was their, what's their experience been like with fibroids? And then, of course, all the appointments, um, our patients were getting hysterectomy, so I was there with them um, on the day of their surgeries, collecting um, their fibroid tissue samples once it was removed from them, um, doing lab stuff. So I was involved with lots of stuff with the study, but my favorite part were just all of the in-between moments, I guess, that didn't make it to the data set. Um, you know, the in-between conversations, walking with the patient from the clinic room to the lab, or, you know, the five minute conversation before they roll the patient back to the operating room for surgery. That's really where the relationships were built. Um, you know, having those conversations about, you know, what are your holiday plans or, you know, what are your kids up to? Or uh, have you tried this new hair care product? I just transitioned to natural hair. So 
Um, those are things that, you know, will never be necessarily captured in a data set, but I think that really start to build relationship. And when you talk about clinical research, um, it's really about trust, I think. And um, I've seen a lot of things circulating lately with, of course, the COVID vaccines coming out about how the onus is on, you know, the medical profession and our researchers and um, on academic scientists to gain trust. It's not for, you know, the general public to trust us just inherently, but for us to gain that trust and to demonstrate that we are trustworthy. And um, even before maybe those were sort of buzzwords and things that people were talking about now, I really tried to implement that within um, the study and how we interacted with our patients and and trying to build trust and demonstrate that we were trustworthy. And, and that, I tried to do that in a lot of ways. Um, I think one, just being transparent about the whole process, um, trying to answer as many questions as I could. Um, you know, patients were very interested in the work that we were doing, um, even though our work wasn't directly benefiting them because they were already at the point of surgery. Um, they still wanted to know what were next steps? What were some of the questions that we were asking? And so just me being able to have those answers ready. And, you know, if I didn't have an answer in my mind, I could go back and say, hey, Dr. Zoda, like someone asked about this, you know, what should, and so we, Dr. Zoda and I would have lots of conversations kind of off the record, just about different things that patients would come up with. And so um, I think that, you know, that was a really big piece of it, trying to make, um, all of our protocols as flexible as possible um, to accommodate patient schedules. So like I was doing interviews at like on Friday night to like 8 p.m. or, you know, Sunday afternoon. I got the call from the participant asking about, you know, if it was a good idea for her to participate on a Sunday afternoon. Um, you know, so trying to be as flexible as possible um, with patients to accommodate their schedule and accommodate their lives was also really important. I think that sometimes um, protocols can be so rigid um, that they miss people because, you know, people's lives don't happen on our perfectly discrete study calendars. And so it's important to build in flexibility there. Um, so those are just some things. And, you know, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It was constantly in um, a work in progress. So we were constantly going back and thinking, how can we make this better? How can we be more flexible in this area? Um, you know, how can we be more transparent in this area? In what ways, you know, maybe if a patient, you know, was maybe annoyed about one thing that happened, how can we make sure this doesn't happen again? How can we remedy for this patient now so that the next few study visits are better? So, you know, I think it's just really being mindful that our participants mean more than just the data points that we collect. Um, they really are, you know, people with real stories and a whole life. And they're giving us a glimpse into their lives and in some cases are sharing information and sharing themselves in a way that maybe even people closest to them um, haven't even had the privilege to see. And so um, I took that really personally. I, <laughs> I at least I tried to. Um, so, so, yeah, I think we were successful in, in that way. Great. So many good lessons there to, uh, for right now, as we, as we try to vaccinate people and, and, mm -hmm. and talk to people um, and, and hopefully we can get there. Um, I do want to take one quick step back before we jump forward uh, beyond sure. GWU. And that is you talked a little bit about Dr. Hood and kind of growing up in public health, uh, your public health interests growing. Um, what is a defining moment that shaped your identity? Oh, my whole identity. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's so many things, you know, I 
I really can take pieces from so many different parts of my life, I think. Um, I can take pieces from childhood. I can take pieces from college, grad school. And even now, um, one thing is that I've always been very confident in myself, like as a Black woman. And I think I I attribute that to just my family and um, them, you know, instilling in us pride and, you know, being Black people. And like, there's nothing, you know, wrong, inherently wrong with us. And even if you're the only one in the room, like embrace being the only one in the room. And if there are others in the room, you know, come together with them. Um, But I would say, I think in graduate school, um, toward the end graduate school, I finished my thesis and um, I had received, you know, a few awards and whatnot. And, um, you know, I think at that time I was finally like, whoa, like I actually have a lot of potential in this field. Like before I think I kind of just, you know, I've been doing my work and doing it to the best of my ability, but I wasn't necessarily sure if I was on the right path or what have you. And um, when I sort of saw what I was able to accomplish in that short period of time um, with my thesis and different presentations and um, just sort of the culmination of all my work um, during my master's program, I was kind of like, whoa, okay, like you're really doing this, Brianna, and, you know, your voice matters and um, what you contribute matters and, you know, you can kind of forge a path for yourself if you want to. And so I would say grad school was kind of like when I felt the most sure in my interest in environmental health and the space that I was occupying um, and, and knew that it was okay for me to be here and occupying this space and, um, you know, things will work out <laughs> in the end. So I would say, you know, that would be one thing that comes to mind. It's like the, the a big moment for me where I felt like I could fully be myself um, in this field and, and pursue my interests. Sure. Yeah. I can really, I can, I can really relate with, um, um, college feels like you're still figuring things out a little bit, whereas grad school feels uh, it's that bridge between professional and college. And you start thinking, uh, I know when I went into journalism, the field was uh, in the, in the, in the pits. And I thought, well, I probably won't get a job, but we'll see what happens. And then, (laughs) then you slowly start thinking, well, heck, maybe I can do this. Yeah. (laughs) You're now um, doing, working in clinical research at the nationwide children's hospital, as we mentioned, tell me a little bit about it. Sure. So it's a big transition from what I was doing at GW. Um, So my work at GW was really like um, all in working with patients. And now I'm kind of on the back end of clinical research, really doing more of the startup and administrative work for um, research, which is a big transition for me, but it's been a great learning experience. And so I essentially help with all of the startup activities for clinical trials at Nationwide Children's Hospital. So um, we work with industry partners, pharmaceutical companies, other sponsors. Um, and so we're really just doing all of what it takes to initiate, um, you know, trials for um, cancer patients, gene therapy, um, you name it. We're probably working on it. We have hundreds of studies coming through all the time. And so, um, it's going completely different world for me because primarily in public health, we're working on observational studies where we're not really, you know, giving a study drug or trying to see how one thing affects the other, but we're mostly just trying to collect information and understand, um, you know, the world around us and how that might be impacting a certain issue. But here I'm really learning the nitty gritty of clinical trials, which has been interesting now that we're in this world of 
COVID and vaccines. And so I've, I've learned so much more about what goes into um, this entire process. And so this is certainly, I think, a transition for me in my life right now. Um, but one where I'm super excited to be back in my home state and closer to family and friends um, and kind of reset a little bit uh, from the work, which I think is also important for people who are are doing a lot of um, intensive research and um, it can be, you know, draining emotionally and physically. And I think being mindful of that is also important because you can only do your best work when you are taking care of yourself. And so I had to learn that lesson. Um, and so for me, this was my way of uh, still being able to contribute to research and contribute to meaningful work, but also take care of myself in a way that um, works best for me, which was being closer to my family right now. Excellent. Yeah, that's another lesson from grad school is uh, self-care. Yeah, <laughs> it's super easy to get burnt out and feel like you need to work uh, mornings and nights, weekends, and that's not good for anybody, including the people nope. you're trying to help. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so your your essay for Agents of Change was published, like we said, not too long after COVID hit, and it was really widely read and shared, and um, it was it was just a fantastic essay and one of one of the more popular ones we had, and. Wondering for you what that experience was like to kind of suddenly have your voice and your thoughts thrust into the public sphere and um, why science communication is something you, I think that you value uh, and anything you um, learned that would be helpful for others that, that might be doing such writing. Sure. Um, I think it was nerve wracking at first, um, just kind of what we were talking about before, where you're not necessarily sure where you stand and you're not sure you're not. 100% confident and, you know, that your voice is important or that it matters or that people, you know, want to hear what you have to say. And especially for me, especially in being in the Agents of Change cohort, I was so inspired by all of my other colleagues and fellows in the cohort. And I was like, you know, I don't know if what I have to say is more important or is, you know, as important as what someone else has to say. So I was kind of just, I wasn't sure what to expect, but was very much encouraged by all the great feedback and um, so many people reading the article and finding things that resonated with them or telling them that they learned lessons. Um, I, I shared it with, you know, I shared it like on Facebook with friends from high school and things like that. And they were like, oh, I didn't know about, you know, the Tuskegee experiments or I didn't know about, you know, this thing or that thing. And so that was cool for me to know that um, I was educating to some extent um, my peers on different issues that they didn't know about. Um, I was really excited and energized to hear that it was being included in course syllabi. And so it was, it was great. It was very gratifying to know that what you had to say was important. And um, I certainly value science communication because I think that um, if without it, we're just talking to each other. We're just talking to other scientists, um, which is not really going to change anything in and of itself, but really being able to, um, translate your science into something that the general public can understand. That's what pushes policy forward. That's what pushes um, different change change and in initiatives forward. And so I would say for anyone that is interested um, in this, it would just be to like go for it and do it. I think for me, like I said, I wasn't sure if people would want to really hear what I had to say. Um, and sometimes I felt intimidated because again, I was in a a cohort of, you know, PhD students and people who, you know, had maybe their own research that they had initiated themselves, where I was a research coordinator who was executing the research of my um, my boss. And so I wasn't necessarily 
sure of myself, but I realized that I had a passion for the work that I was doing. And I brought a lot to the research program, even though it wasn't my own brainchild. And so I still had a lot to say um, about the issues that I wrote about. And so for anyone, you know, whether you're on the undergraduate level or grad school level or, you know, wherever you are, if you have something to say, if you're passionate about it, um, I think that you should try to write it and get it out there on whatever platform that you have because you know people need to hear your voice and hear what you have to say and you mentioned facebook and i love the idea of high school friends or whomever reading it and and maybe finally understanding what you do because that's yeah. one, of the, one of the points of the program is to get to get people writing who have maybe had very complex, dense research they're working on, and they try to explain it to their mother or, or whomever, father at dinner, and, and it just goes right over their head. Like, what What are you doing? And, I, and yep. I think that's a really powerful aspect of the program. And speaking of Facebook, when it comes to social media, was that something you used to, to push the work out, to, to communicate in other ways? How do you feel about it? How do you use it? Sure. So, you know, I would say prior to Agents of Change, I was very much like anti-Twitter, but I only because I had used it on a personal level, like, you know, in college and before. And I just, for those reasons, I didn't love it. <laughs> Dr. Zoda, she changed my mind in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, I do definitely see the value of um, you know, using it in academic spaces. And there is a lot of information that you can gain from using social media for science communication. Um, and it's a great way to get your work out there. Like you were saying with Facebook, I literally, when I shared the article, I was like, in case you ever wondered what I, what I do for a living. <laughs> and some people were like, oh, that's what a research coordinator does or whatever. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to do a lot of good on social media and, and sharing information. I think um, as with anything, it's important to critically be thinking about whose voices are being amplified, even in those spaces, because, you know, even on Twitter or in different social media spaces, um, certain voices may be prioritized over others. Um, certain opinions and values may be prioritized over other people. Um, sometimes it can just be like a high five each other. We're so great session. And so I think that even with social media being a, a great platform beyond academic journals to share information, it's so important to be sure that you're touching back and reaching back to the communities that you hope to serve um, and that you hope your work is relevant to. And so um, I think that just with anything, it's always about critically evaluating, you know, the reasons for why we're using these different platforms and um whose voices are being amplified and whose are maybe being neglected. And so um, I'm now a Twitter user and, you know, try to share articles as I see them. I probably could get a little better at it, but I think that it's a great way to share information. And I've certainly learned a lot um, just from, you know, following certain um, thought leaders and, and people that I look up to um, in environmental health and then also, you know, beyond the field as well. Such a good point. I mean, they so they always say in, in journalism, you have to go where the people are, you know, and that that's where the people are. And I push back and say, but yeah, that's where the other people are too. The 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 bots and the uh, and the vitriol and the misinformation. So, but I have said this on other podcasts too. We also, after these essays published the first time around, EHN's Twitter, we we saw so many new 
people that were doing the same kind of work that you all were doing. And then it started this kind of snowball effect where we got to meet all of these other early career scientists of color who were doing very cool research that, that we didn't know about. So it can be a real positive. And uh, I can hear, I can hear Dr. Zoda telling me that uh, it's a good thing. I am the skeptic. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so hopefully I'm not breaking any news here to, to your family that's listening to this, but I just want to congratulate you on getting into medical school. Thank you. Um, no, you're not breaking any news. Everyone good. that needs to know knows. <laughs> so I'm curious. Um, I'm curious how how you envision. You know, that's obviously that's a that's a long journey that you're that you're about to embark on. But how you envision eventually bridging these worlds of environmental health science and clinical medicine once you're once you're at that point. Sure. Um, so I'm still trying to figure it out. I've been trying to articulate these interests. Um, in medical school interviews for the last several months. And, you know, I think that physicians are in a unique position where they have a chance to not only be on the front lines of clinical care, but can also really use their voices and sort of position in society to advocate um, for a lot of these social and environmental issues that impact their patients. Um, I also think that like right now, all of our health issues are so complex. Like it's not just, you know, about biology anymore. Like you have to really bring in and have interdisciplinary collaboration with experts from all different fields. And so I think that like medicine in general really has to like get on board with that idea that like, it's not just about us. It's really about um, all of these experts as well as the communities who are their own experts about the issues that, that impact them. It's all about all of us coming together to address these head on. And so I think that I I was able to start to see good examples of that with um, the research that Dr. Zoda was doing at GW because, you know, as an epidemiologist and public health expert, she was working with sociologists and basic scientists and, um, you know, gynecologic surgeons to kind of address this issue of fibroids, all from um their unique perspectives and expertise. And so I hope that my career can really uh, do that. I love to be involved with projects like that, that are bringing together experts from different fields to really amplify these issues. And I just think that um, clinicians in general have to be informed about um, the upstream factors that impact their patients, you know, like the clinical interactions are such a small subset of what you know, impacts and influences the patient's health. And so I think that it's really important that clinicians realize that and, and act accordingly. And so I hope that I can do that. Um, and so there's some great models that I have for me um, in my life who are physicians who are also environmental health um, experts. And so I hope to sort of emulate a lot of the work that they've done um, and, you know, hopefully do even more. So It'll be a learning process, and um, it's been fun to kind of reflect the last few months during interviews on just how my experiences in environmental health have really informed my passion for, um, you know, underserved communities and for advancing health equity and justice for Black and brown uh, communities. And, you know, I hope that I can um, always, you know, be reflecting on and, and leveraging my environmental health background in a clinical role. <laughs> it seems to me just going into the field 
thinking about these things is a step in the right direction. Whereas so many, and I don't want to overgeneralize, but I just don't know that it's front of mind for a lot of doctors and and nurses. Yeah, I don't think so either. I mean, that's the feedback that I've gotten from a lot of um, the physicians and um, admissions committee members that I've interviewed with is that if they've, they have thought it's been, you know, relatively unique, which is interesting to me because I'm like, this isn't, this isn't unique. Like, you know, but again, I've been around people that are thinking about these issues and care about them. And so it's been interesting to talk with, you know, folks outside of our field that are like, oh, this is a very unique perspective. And I'm like, is it? But um, I'm glad you think so. Um, so, you know, I think that um, there's a lot of work to still be done to really be sure that, you know, these environmental health issues that impact so many different, you know, medical issues that we talk about from, you know, reproductive health to, you know, I don't know, just everything. There's so many things that environmental health is um, at the forefront of. And I think that there's a lot of work to be done to really integrate um, the two areas in a more intentional way. So I hope to do that. And I hope to rely on um, my public health colleagues and their expertise in a lot of ways too, and not just try to, you know, um, I don't want to leave the public health aspect of it out because to me, they go hand in hand. Um, and so, you know, I'll be calling up Dr. Ons and um, all the other Asians of Change fellows, hopefully in the future. <laughs> awesome. And Brianna, my last question today is a little bit different. What is the last book you read for fun? Oh, for fun. Hmm. Well, this is a good question. Well, I'm currently reading um, Medical Apartheid, which <laughs> that's fun. <laughs> um, I also finished um, The New Jim Crow. So I, I like reading historical sort of, you know, interesting books like that. Um, I need to get better at reading, you know, maybe more lighthearted books for fun. But I, especially in this year, have just been trying to be even more informed about um, how our history is impacting us, you know, now and what lessons we can learn from the past um, moving forward in the future. But um, do you have any book recommendations? Oh, you are the first one to turn it around on me. So I have this lovely habit of avoiding reading about environment, environmental health for the most part. So I'll read some um, wildlife books. I'm I'm okay. really into wildlife. So I also embarrassingly read comic books and graphic novels. So nice. let's see. And I'm a cyclist. So the last two books I read were about bicycling, which I can't find. Oh, boy. Put me on the spot. Didn't expect that. <laughs> So I'll just Sorry. The last, the last one I finished was the the best graphic novel of all time, in my opinion, which is The Watchmen. Okay. Uh, okay. So if you ever want to read, go down a rabbit hole of graphic novels. The Watchmen yeah. is a brilliant novel. So it's one of my goals for 2021 to read more books. I think you know I'm I want to challenge myself with that because you know for so long you could just read academic journals and like you know not necessarily read for fun and so. I want to start doing more of that. So yes, me too. Well, Brianna, I, I don't. People can't see this over audio, but you are always smiling, and it's always lovely to talk to you. And um, I've, I've really appreciated getting to know you. And thanks for taking the time today. 
Thanks so much, Brian. I was super delighted when I got your email uh, the other day. And I was, you know, anytime I always will make time for this great program because I think that um, people have a lot to say and you all are giving us the platform to say it. So I appreciate you and Dr. Zoda and um, EHN and everyone else involved. So thank you. That's all for today. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click the big orange donate button. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram or at ehn.org under our special projects tab. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher. Just search Agents of Change in Environmental Health. And sign up for our monthly newsletter. Our homepage is agentsofchangeneh.com where you can subscribe keep on top of not only the podcast, but essays, webinars, and other happenings with our awesome fellows past and present. Our podcast production team is myself, Gwen Raniger, and Raya Huddad. Join us next time when I'm joined by Ara Badaki, an educator, PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania Graduate School of Education. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Have a great week, folks. <laughs>